Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 18th, 2018. voice sounds deeper than normal. Weird. <laughs> Light episode today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward for consumption by Christians, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, it's generally just a mess as far as the teaching out there in uh, evangelicalism. And so we help you rightly understand God's Word, apply biblical discernment, Learn the basics of hermeneutics and exegesis without using those words for the most part. <laughs> What's a herm? Nudic. <laughs> Sounds painful. Yeah, I know. I, I get it. Now, uh, today I am on the road, so this is going to be our light episode today, which is why I did a normal episode yesterday. And uh, we're going to be listening to uh, two lessons today from Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. And the reason why is because... Uh, the you know the, the, neither one of them is is quite complete. <laughs> Let's just say the first one is complete, but I didn't dedicate the entire teaching time to the uh, the book of Exodus. And the second one, uh, after wrapping up on the uh, Ten Commandments, started into the next portion of uh, of Exodus, and uh, the microphone uh, cut out partway through. I think the battery died, and so. Uh, <laughs> We have a partial lesson is the best way I could put it. And and my apologies when the <laughs> this episode ends. It ends quite abruptly. So I my, it is not my intention to have such a stark ending 
but it is that way nonetheless. And so uh, let's get into it. Uh, the first portion of this, we're going to wrap up our look at the Ten Commandments. Second part, we're going to dive into the next part of the book of Exodus. So let's get to it. Uh, here we go. All right, let's get back into the, uh, our finishing up of the commandments, God's holy law. We've noted a few things, and that is, is that God carries out his punishments for our sin in several different ways. Primarily, you can talk about the subjecting us all to the difficulties of this earthly life and the toil and the work that we have to do. That goes back to Genesis 3. We talk about the fact that God also can punish our sins through authorized authorities, such as parents, when parents do not spare the rod in order that their children do not be spoiled. Or we can also talk about how then the government uh, is set up by God as an authority to punish the evildoer. I need to note again that we are living in a strange time when our governments and governments, you know, Western governments, seem to be hell-bent on punishing good and protecting evil. So, and it's, this is only getting worse. Uh, I would just say buckle up. It's going to be a rough ride ahead is the best way I can say it. And then there's another one that is very difficult for us to come to grips with, but... Again, this kind of goes along with what we were talking about regarding church discipline, is that one of the ways in which God punishes us, and we can see this in Romans chapter 1, is actually handing us over to self-destructive sins and their consequences, where God basically says, fine, you don't want to worship me as God, you want to be an idolater, you know that I exist, you know that you're not giving me glory, fine, I'm going to hand you over to debasing passions. And so sin itself... And an ever-increasing appetite for sin is actually a punishment from God. And it's important for us to recognize that as the case. Now, the ways in which God fulfills his promises to us would be through the blessings of the earth, uh, fair, you know, good fair weather and things like that. I'm praying that we get some warmer weather soon, because not only do I not like winter that lasts this long, but I also am concerned about the farmers in the area, that they're able to get their crops into the ground and things like that. So one of the ways that God blesses us is through the fruit of the earth. Also, God blesses us with good parents or good authorities and good government officials. And then the other way in which God blesses us is with temporal health, talents, and vocational work for the securing of our bodily needs and possessions and things like that. And so if you do not have a bad back, that is a blessing from God. I know because that blessing has been robbed of me for the past few days. I'm looking forward to receiving that blessing back. But the idea then is, is that we don't always have to view like if you know health setbacks as some kind of like God's punishing you for a particular sin because your back was thrown out. That's not the way you look at these things. So the idea then is, is that every blessing of God flows from the fact that he has sent us his Savior. And, and so because we are in him, we are reckoned righteous, our sins are forgiven, and we have a right standing before God. And that makes it possible for us to be able to praise God and rejoice, not only in the good times when we're blessed, but also in the difficult times when we are suffering. And so that's the idea. And then none of this means we don't ever want to come up with this quid pro quo approach that basically says that if we act a certain way, then God will bless us in particular ways with health or finances or things like that. That's not how it works. If you think about it this way, the only sinless man who ever walked the earth was Jesus Christ, and he was not a wealthy fellow, and he suffered terribly. And then his apostles, you think of the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul is a fellow who 
he was doing good, preaching Christ, bringing people to penitent faith in Christ and planting churches throughout the Mediterranean. And you look at his resume from uh, 2 Corinthians 11 about how he was always in danger and was beaten and flogged and all these kinds of things. And you recognize that the saying, no good deed goes unpunished, definitely may apply to Christians. So we do not look at our temporal circumstances as somehow a thermometer as to our standing before God especially if we are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Sometimes doing good in that way will get you in all kinds of trouble. So, now for a thorny doctrine, and one that we have to come to grips with and should not follow those who have erred and departed from Christian sound biblical doctrine, and that is, is the question is, what ultimately does God threaten against those who hate him and persist in sin and unbelief in breaking his commandments? What is it that we are truly saved from? That's the question. And the answer is hell. That's the answer. And I know this makes people uncomfortable. I know that there are Christians who have a difficult time reconciling. How can Scripture say that God is love and send people to hell? And the best way I can put it is is that God is, It's truly love, and yet at the same time, God is also just. These different aspects of who God is and what his character is do not conflict with each other, but we err when we try to somehow put love over God's justice in a way that eliminates God's justice. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians today who cannot bear an outright attack the biblical doctrine of hell. And it's important to note this, and that is is that there was one person who in scriptures taught the most about hell. And the person who taught the most about hell was not Isaiah, and it wasn't Moses. It was Jesus Christ. He's the one who taught the most about it, and he spoke very explicitly concerning it. Now, in order to properly understand the doctrine of hell, we have to know something about how death operates. Each and every one of us, because we are sinners, we know that the wages of sin is death. And it's important to note that Scripture makes a distinction. It talks about the first death, and it talks about the second death. It talks about the first resurrection, and it talks about the second resurrection. So in order to properly understand what it is that we are saved from, we have to get death right. So I'm going to do a quick word search in my Bible program, and we're going to look in the book of Revelation at several passages, and we're going to be looking specifically at the passages that talk about the second death. Let me pull these up, add a little bit of context to them, and listen to what Christ says. You're going to note that in the opening passages, in the opening passage here, death, the second death is described and talked about by none other than Jesus. Notice the red letters. Oftentimes when we read our Bibles, we think that red letters, the letters or the words that Jesus spoke, are somehow limited only to the Gospels. But you're going to find red letters in the Gospels. You'll find them in the book of Acts. You will also find red letters in the book of Revelation. And it's important for us to recognize this, that the opening portion of the book of Revelation are actual letters that Christ himself, the risen Jesus, dictated word for word to the apostle John. 
And so this is the reason why in the book of Revelation, there's a whole section in the beginning portion of it where you'll see red letters. And those aren't pretend letters that somebody just pinned on Jesus. Those are actual words that he spoke. Important for us to keep that in mind. So we read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Second death. You see, the, one, the death you need to be worried about, the death that needs to keep you awake at night, is not your physical death here and now. It's the second death that you need to worry about. And so Christ himself is warning us about the second death and promising that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, we read these words. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So if I were to give you a Sunday school quiz, and on the quiz it said, please define for me what the second death is. What is the second death? The lake of fire. Now, look at Revelation 21, verse 8, and here's what it says. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Second death equals lake of fire. Let me pull up another passage of Scripture. I think it's in Revelation 14. And in Revelation 14, starting at verse 9, listen to these words. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beasts and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So you'll note, Scripture clearly teaches that the lake of fire is not a temporal punishment. It is an eternal punishment. And the torment that they experience there is without end. It is without rest. It lasts day and night, days without end. And it's important for us to recognize this, that each and every single one of us, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our participation in the works of darkness, this is exactly what each and every one of us deserves. This is most certainly true. It is not by our righteousness that we avoid this fate. It is by God's grace and mercy and the gift that he has given us in the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. 
we are never to consider ourselves better than anybody else because we have been granted mercy from God to avoid this fate. This is what we are saved from. And it's a hard pill to swallow. And we want to blame God. We want to turn it around on God and say, God, how dare you? How can you say you're loving and do that to people? That's, that's absurd. Because every single person who ends up in this fate, this is what they deserve. Every single person who is saved is not getting what they deserve. And the only reason why any of us is capable of not getting what we, reserve, what we deserve is because Jesus took what we deserve on himself so that God's justice and his wrath can be f- fulfilled. God didn't say, all right, I'll give you guys another chance. Sin's no big deal. No, <laughs> that's not it at all. Instead, God says, I love you, and since my justice has to be fulfilled, I will take your place as your substitute. So when we see Christ suffering, bleeding, and dying on the cross, each and every one of us needs to remember your sins, kind of individually, are what he is bleeding and dying for. You know, I, regardless of what you think about Mel Gibson, you know, some people really like him, some people really hate him, that is immaterial. The one thing I thought was fascinating with the movie, The Passion of the Christ, is that Mel Gibson makes a cameo appearance in the movie. Does anyone know which character Mel Gibson plays? No. no. Oh, he plays the person who comes the male. That's right. Mel Gibson's only cameo appearance, he, his hands were the hands holding the hammer that nailed Jesus to the cross. That's our role. And the fact that he took that for himself should make us realize that each and every one of us, if we were in that movie, that's the place I would be. That's the place you would be. It's our sins that put him on the cross. And he did not, no one took his life from him. He willingly laid down his life for you so that you can live. And that's the beauty of the gospel. But we must always remember and never take it away that what we are being saved from, and Scripture says it so clearly, is the actual wrath of God itself. We are not being saved from a bad hair day. We are not being saved from the upsets and the slipsies and the oopsies and the things that make your life uncomfortable or just make it so that you're not, things aren't running as smoothly as they could. Yesterday on the way to the men's Bible study, I hit four stoplights. And I was just like, come on. Really, how many of these things? See, Jesus didn't die for that. You, you see what I'm saying? That's just an annoyance. What he died for was the wrath of God. Now, I want to show you another passage, and I love the fact that this passage shows up every year in the lectionary. But it's in Matthew chapter 25 at the close of the Olivet Discourse, and it's, the, it's a very thinly veiled parable, and it's kind of how the day of judgment is going to go down. The redundancy in working through the text and pointing out the same things I've pointed out are for the sake that we continue to focus in on these important truths because this is how the day of judgment is going to look. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Notice red letters. 
He will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all of the nations. Everybody. The French will be there. The Russians. The Syrians. The Norwegians. Even the ones in Oslo. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And I need to note, at this point, the judgment has already taken place. You are judged by what you are. You are either one of Christ's sheep or you are a goat. And it's important for us to recognize every one of us was born a goat. And that's the miracle of becoming a Christian is that Christ miraculously through the working of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace, the preaching of his word, the waters of baptism transforms us from being dead to being alive, from being goats to being sheep. And it's all by his grace, because I don't know a single goat who can sit there and say, bah, I really wish I was a sheep. Bah. It doesn't work. You're separated by what you are. You are either in Christ or you are not. So the judgment's already taken place. Only then are the books open and we can talk about works. So the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, um, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Sheep are not very smart. Jesus will say, oh, you silly sheep. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, and here's the important words, my brothers. Who are Jesus' brothers? The apostles, the ones who believe. Jesus' brothers are the ones who bring to you the good news of Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of your sins. So his brothers were sent out by Jesus to proclaim the gospel. And what happened to them? They were sick. They were in prison. They were beaten. They were mistreated. Paul even talks about how one time he was naked. And what did the people do? They clothed them, visited them in prison, cared for them, and all this kind of stuff because they were the brothers of Jesus. How do you treat those who bring to you the gospel? That's the idea. If you believe the gospel, then you're going to treat these servants, these brothers of Christ, well. And you're going to treat each other with love. So then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed. And watch the emphasis. Into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. On a first reading, you can sit there and say, Well, that just means the fire burns forever. It means that and more. The text continues. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to 
you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, who is he pointing to? His brothers. You did not do it to me. And then these will go away into, and what does your text say? Eternal punishment. And the righteous into what? All right. How many of you believe that eternal life only lasts for 10,000 years? If we have been given eternal life, how long do you expect that to last? Eternally. Forever. (laughs) I like the way you said that. Forever. You betcha. Forever. This is not rocket surgery. This is not rocket surgery. It lasts forever. Eternal life lasts forever. But notice the same word, eternal, is used for something else. How long does the punishment last? Forever. It lasts forever. Now, there are those in the Christian church today, they subscribe to a view. One name for it is conditionalism. The, the idea behind conditionalism is, is that however bad your sins were that you committed in this lifetime, if you die without faith, then that will determine how long you will be in the lake of fire. So their, their idea is, is that, you know, let's say that you were a 13-year-old kid and you didn't really live that long. And for the most part, you didn't commit that many sins. You just did the standard stuff, you know, stealing bubble gum from Hugo's and lying to your friends and, you know, nonsense like that or not doing your chores. I mean, that's not as bad as like Hitler, right? And Hitler is over here and then, you know, the 13-year-old kid is over there. And so they'll say, so the, the 13-year-old kid, granted, God's going to punish him. But throw him into the lake of fire, and he'll probably last there for a couple of days, and then he will cease to exist. That's not what this text says. That's a man-made doctrine. That is a man-made doctrine. And I understand the temptation to go this way. I really do. We, in our sinful, fallen state, somehow think that we know better than God, or that somehow we can fault God that his justice would result in that extreme, in our view, justice. But again, I would say, we don't know what we're talking about. You are making sin a light thing when you do this. And what we have to realize, look at the world around us. Look at the curse that we all labor under. I'll always, again, point it out. You guys look so much more older than when I first got here four years ago. What is wrong with you people? Mark, your gray hair is really starting to get peppery. You so. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's my fault. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This has gotten a little grayer since knowing you too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know. And... (laughs) And I've even buried some of the Kongsvinger folk. The idea is this, is that how many sins did it take to plunge us into this misery? One. One. This is almost unbearable what we are going through. You know, I heard that Trump bombed Syria. And I heard last week that Syria gassed its own people. And I thought to myself, 
when will this end? This is nothing new. I remember the missile attacks we launched against Iraq. I remember the missile attacks we've launched against other nations. I remember the original Gulf War. I remember Stormin Norman Schwarzkopf. He's dead now. That makes me feel old. And you look at our world from terrorist attacks to shootings in the schools to the terrible ways that we treat each other. This life is awful. And you know what makes it so awful? We do. We do. And yet we would point our finger at God and say, how dare you punish somebody for eternity? And yet God, it says, demonstrates his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for our sins. The eternal God, born of the Virgin Mary, on a Friday afternoon, suffered the full wrath of God in our place so that we would not suffer that fate. And we have the audacity in our fallen sinfulness to sit there and say, you're not just. That's not fair. Are we out of our minds? Are we, have we lost our minds? I think we have. I would submit to you, we are in no position to judge God. And he is in every position to judge us. And we must remember that his law has found us all guilty. So the doctrine of hell, it stands. It's clearly taught. Jesus mentioned it over and over and over again, using the same metaphors, making it clearly sound like this thing does not end, where the worm does not die. Eternal torment, the, the anguish of their torment goes up before the saints and the angels and God and the Lamb forever and ever. That's what we all deserve. But ultimately, that's what we're saved from. Does in the New Testament, Matthew through Revelations or whatever, who um, is heaven talked about? Who, what just talked about more? Heaven or hell? Does Jesus talk? Or is it about 50-50? You know, I always thought hell was more. Uh, Jesus spent a lot more time preaching about hell, but he also spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so I, I haven't done, you know, I haven't sit hand just like, you know, and done the bean thing. Okay, one bean for hell, one bean for heaven, and things like that. But it, it, my, my gut would tell me that it, it's probably an even split and maybe a little bit more in favor of the kingdom of heaven. But he did speak explicitly about hell and not on an infrequent basis, on a really frequent basis. Yeah, and here's the thing. When you understand what it is we all deserve and what we're saved from, now let's take a look at Christ on the cross. What does that tell you about the gospel? If you don't get that right, then the gospel really loses its significance. It really becomes diminished. When you diminish God's law and you diminish his wrath and water it down with your own dumb ideas, because that's really ultimately what we're talking about. You think your ideas are better than what the words of God are in the Bible. Your dumb ideas are now diluting the true full potency of God's word because you think you know better, which is idolatry, self-idolatry at that. And that just mixes it all up. And then the gospel loses its true potency. 
until you understand what it is we all deserve, the gospel cannot have its full sweetness. And this is why you think of um, the fellow who wrote Amazing Grace. This is a guy who was an, an enslaver. He was a slave ship captain. This fellow literally captained ships where they took humans in chains, put them down in the cargo hold. And how many of these fellows and women did not survive the passage across the Atlantic? And he made multiple trips. He had no compassion, no mercy. He had participated in something that God's law says he deserved death for. I want to make that clear. The book of Exodus, and we'll see this when we get back into the text, the book of Exodus, when it comes to enslavers, those who would literally steal another human being, you see this in the book of Exodus, it literally says, the person who steals another human being shall be put to death, and anyone caught with that human being will also be put to death. The Mosaic Covenant makes it very clear that not only the enslaver, but everybody who participates in the industry is subject as a capital crime to capital punishment from God. This guy comes to grips with just how wicked and evil he is and what becomes his hymn that he writes that we all sing at every funeral. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a what? A wretch like me. There's a wonderful video on YouTube where a guy who knows a thing or two about music and its history and things like that notes kind of the uniqueness of the, the tune itself. We all know it. It's kind of, you know, it sounds good on the bagpipes and everything like that. But this guy actually makes the case that the tune itself was not a tune that he wrote. That Newton took that tune because that was the tune that the slaves were singing when they were in the cargo hold. It's almost like an African dirge. And I think that sounds right. And it wrecked him. And in his later life, what does he become? A pastor. And becoming a pastor cannot undo what he did as a slave trader. Right. You can study God's Word. You can teach Bible studies. It can't undo your wickedness. You can go and work in the homeless shelter. You can go and preach the gospel in the prisons. It will not be enough to save you. There's not enough good that you can do to purchase your redemption. And God in His mercy has done this for us. Which is then why when we read First John this morning, we are admonished because of Christ's great love for us. We are to be marked by love for each other. Do you truly know what it means to be loved by God when you clench your fist and you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ? I would say no. And I don't say that as my opinion. I say that that's what the text says. Love covers a multitude of sins. And the love of Christ has covered a multitude of your sins. In fact, all of them. So, we do not dare shave the hard edges off of God's law. We've spent months, and I mean this, months 
slowly, methodically working our way through the Ten Commandments. Did you ever think that they were that comprehensive? That they really required you to do that much? And having spent all of these months working our way through these Ten Commandments, I've got to ask you, how well are you keeping them? And see, that's the point. You can't. You don't. This is why we need Christ and we need the gospel. So let's continue on then as we wrap up our study of the commandments and note then that God's law is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Let me ask you this real quick. This is not a trick question. God wants you to keep his commandments. How carefully does God want you to keep them? What's the, sta- what's the standard? Perfectly. How do we know this? How do we know that God wants us to keep his law perfectly? Where? In the Bible. Two demerits. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. Jesus' half-brother James writes in James chapter 2, verse 10, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All of it. That kind of tells you about the futility of somehow building a house of cards called my good works, as if somehow that's going to save you. Because one, one infraction brings the whole thing down. So, can anyone be saved by keeping God, God's law or His commandments? Answer, no. Let's take a look at a passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter 3. Paul writing to the churches in Galatia who had listened to the Judaizers who were saying that you cannot be saved unless you keep the Mosaic Covenant along with believing in Jesus. They were being self-righteous. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What do you think the answer to the question is? Hearing with faith, right. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? And note... Note the language here. To walk according to the Spirit is to walk according to faith. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. So know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. All the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely, and that's an important word, by the way. It doesn't say all who keep the commandments. All who rely on works of the law. 
To rely on works of the law is to say, God, I deserve to go to heaven because I did this, 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 and this. That's to rely on the works of the law. We are not to rely on them. We are to keep his commandments because we are saved. But we are not to rely on God's law for salvation and justification. So all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continually do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. How many people are justified before God by the law? No one. For the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. In fact, the law doesn't require faith at all. This requires obedience. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. However, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And what is the curse of the law? The curse of the law is its condemnation. Important to note, the law itself is not a curse. God's law is holy and just and good. But the curse of the law is its condemnation of our sin. And it rightly condemns us. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For cursed is, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So to give a human example, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Once the contract's been signed, you can't change the clauses. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Zerah, singular. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And your offspring, that's Christ. So this is what I mean. The, the law, the Torah, which came 430 years afterwards, given at Mount Sinai, it does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So the important, the important covenant then is the Abrahamic, not the Mosaic. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham by faith. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So then is the law contrary to the promises of God? No, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were all held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so you're going to note here, even the Apostle Paul talking about our salvation as a gift, not by works, reminds us again, you were baptized. And the reason he does it is because of the promises of God that are given in the waters of baptism. 
that we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Our sins are washed away. Our hearts are circumcised by Christ. So Paul always is pointing his Christians back to the waters of baptism, which is why your pastor does the same thing as well. Because I can say with certainty that was a place where God promised you things and you hang on by faith to all of those promises. So remember, you have been united with Christ in the waters of baptism, that you have put him on and that we are his and that we are heirs according to the promise, not according to the law and works. So now you see then how law and gospel work out. The law is good. The curse of the law is its accusation, power. But that curse has been silenced by Christ, and we are saved not by our law-keeping. We are saved by grace through faith in his mercy. And the reason why we do good works is because we are the children of God. We are the children of light. We no longer walk in darkness. We walk in the light of his word, and we keep and we guard his commandments, knowing that the law itself is the law of freedom. Sin is slavery. Loving each other is freedom. That's the idea. All right, we'll pick this up again next week. Actually, next week we'll get back into the book of Exodus. All right, there's lesson number one. Again, not the total lesson. It was you know, mostly an entire lesson, but uh, you get the idea. Now, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. When we come back, we're going to actually play a partial lesson, literally where the microphone cuts out, but... Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, we'll be right back. This might feel like theological waterboarding, but you'll get used to it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes, 
That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck. Because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never teaches God's Word in depth. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey, and that's a commitment of $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at 24 95 a month. After that, Gunner's uh, Master Gunner at 49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster 99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a fantastic way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the become a patron button. And of course, if you'd like to uh, support us the traditional uh, old-fashioned way, you can do so by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the next portion of our teaching today. And my apologies for the abrupt end. My microphone literally cut out. As we continue working our way through the book of Exodus and looking at some of the civil laws that are beginning to come up in the text, here we go. Let's pray and we will get started. Lord God, help us to grow in the knowledge of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to remain firm in the confession of his blessed word. Give us the love to be of one mind, to serve one another in Christ. Then we will not be afraid of that which is disagreeable, nor the rage of the arsonist Satan, whose torch is almost extinguished. Dear Father, guard us so that his craftiness may not take the place of our pure faith. Grant that our cross and sufferings may lead to a blessed and sure hope of the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, for whom we wait daily. Amen. So we wrapped up our look at the Ten Commandments, and that was all part of, this is to say the last months, and many, many, many months, have been really digging in deep into the Ten Commandments as we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. We're now going to, kind of like the Red River is now kind of swollen and ready to move upstream, we're, we're ready to head, head it the same way and begin to actually work through the rest of Exodus. A little bit of a note here is in the chapters that immediately follow Exodus chapter 20, where we receive the Ten Commandments. In the, in the chapters that follow, the immediate ones, we're going to get a lot of law. And we're going to note, we're going to start to see then not just moral law, but we're also going to begin to see civil law. And I know on its face, it, this sounds about as fun as studying the United States legal code. <laughs> and I, I, if you ever are suffering from insomnia, pulling out something like that on the Internet and just starting reading legalese will put you right to sleep, I promise. So. I was at a Gideon meeting this weekend and one of the fellows who spoke who gave his personal testimony of how a Gideon Bible had touched his life and led to faith. I started reading out and he had a really tough background. So I started reading the book from the beginning. Genesis was kind of interesting. and a lot of good stuff. Exodus, you know, a lot of adventure in Exodus. Then I got to live in it around me and I was ready to throw the book away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throw the book away. <laughs> yeah.
I, yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> so so here's, here's what we will always try to keep in mind, is that when we look at God's law, I think it's important for us to understand that many, much of this reflects his character, and none of these laws would be necessary if it were not for our sin. When Jesus was tested by a lawyer in Matthew 22, and you know it's always a good story when there's an attorney involved, right? When he was tested by an attorney as to what is the, the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus' answer was that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, he said, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two, all of the law hangs. So the idea then is, is that as we look through these law passages, it'll be fascinating to see God's justice in play. You're going to note that God oftentimes will take the side of those whom we in our sin who would exploit. And that tells us something of his great character. But it's also important for us to recognize that in one way or another, these laws reflect the different ways in which we fail to love God and love neighbor. And so as Christians, we recognize that God's law condemns us, and it always does, but this is not the only thing that it does. It also informs us then as to what a good work is. And it's oh so fascinating when you really consider the magnitude of what's going on here, and also having to wrestle with the fact that some of the things that we're going to be covering in the book of Exodus are going to be dealing with issues that are still cultural hot potatoes today. And I'll explain that, especially the issue of slavery. So we'll, we'll take a look at that. So with that, well, let's dive into Exodus chapter 21. And remember when the Ten Commandments were given, the people stood far off and they were totally afraid by God because that's what God's law does to us. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And this is going to be civil law. So these are going to be the civil laws of the ancient theocracy of Israel. When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. Isn't that interesting? Huh. And now we have the thorny question. We as Christians, what are we to make of this? Have any of you ever heard a liberal theologian or somebody who's come under the sway of a liberal theologian say, you Christians, you think you have it right. You think you know everything. You think that Jesus rose bodily from the grave and that homosexuality is a sin and, and you're just holier than thou and all this kind of stuff. Don't you recognize that's just arrogance because there were people who were true believers in Jesus Christ, or at least they claimed to be, and they fought for the side of the Confederate States of America in order to preserve that evil institution of slavery. And who's defending slavery today, huh? So all those Christians were wrong. So how do you know you're not wrong about your belief? that Jesus bled and died for your sins and that he rose from the grave, huh? Ever heard this argument? This is a popular one, and it's a toxic one. And what it requires us to do is to, first of all, recognize that, yeah, there are people who are believers who have believed and and defended some pretty terrible things, just straight-up awful. You look at the history of the Crusades, there's... There's some guilt there on the part of people who 
profess Christ. This is just most certainly true. And I have no problem saying that there were people who were in, in church every Sunday in southern states during the Civil War praying for the defeat of the Union Army and for the preservation of slavery. This is no doubt true. So what do we do with a text like this where it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave? Is God condoning slavery? Not exactly. Let me put it this way. When somebody is financially destitute in our nation today, let's say a fellow has made some really bad business decisions, his, his business has gone bust, and he cannot put food on the table for his wife and his children. Who generally helps that fellow? The government. The government does. We have welfare. There was no welfare in the ancient world. So what happens when a person makes some bad business decisions, stretches himself out financially, and the whole thing goes up in smoke? What do you do in a situation like that? What could be done? Answer, in the ancient world, slavery was a way for people to continue to meet their physical needs. But in order to do so, they put themselves into slavery to pay off debts or things like this. They had, you know, and so this was, it was actually part of the safety net, if you would, of the ancient world. Now, it's important to note this. As we read through this passage, we're going to see that a particular kind of slavery is absolutely condemned in the strongest words by God. This is the kind the U.S. had. And let's talk about the slavery that the U.S. had. There were tribes in Africa who were fighting with each other. And there were people from one tribe who were taking hostage people of other tribes, capturing them, shackling them, throwing them onto slave ships. And then if they survived the passage to anywhere in the United States or parts of the British Commonwealth, they were sold on the slave block as slaves. That is not the slavery that we're talking about here. That slavery is explicitly condemned by Scripture. In fact, this very chapter not only condemns it, you'll see in just a few minutes that this, that kind of slavery is threatened with cap, those who participate in it on all levels are threatened with capital punishment by God. This is why Scripture forbids enslavers but if you have a person who they're, they're down and out and the only asset they have is their own body, they have the right in the ancient world to sell themselves into slavery. And if you are an Israelite and he is a fellow Israelite, that slavery does not continue to the end of his life without his input. And if he puts himself into slavery, and you purchase him, you have six years, and after six years, he's a free man for nothing. Zero dollars. Important to note. So keep that in mind. So, and listen to this. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. 
and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, notice who's in the driver's seat, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, talking about the tabernacle, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, pierce his ear, and he shall be his slave forever. Who's making the decision? The slave is. So have you guys ever met men who have pierced ears? Just ask them, who are you, who are you who's your master? <laughs> That's what that means, right? <laughs> so you'll note then who's in charge. And notice that God puts very specific limits on it. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. So in this particular case, it's a slightly different set of rules for female, females than males. And in a male-driven patriarchal society where women cannot own property, then the idea then being is, is that a girl sold into slavery, it's a good living. And if she is not treated well by her master... She's allowed to go free, period. So no abuse of slaves is permitted, period. And in this particular case, the idea here is, is that if she's not, she's not pleasing to the one who purchased her, then he has to let her go. And he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Now, if he designates her for his son, so a fellow purchases a, a girl as a slave, She's doing the housework and doing the other things that slaves do. And he says, you know what? She would really make a good mate for my son. And so the idea then is, is that, that he arranges then for his son to marry the slave girl. What do you do in a situation like that? Because one has standing and the other doesn't. Answer, God is going to require that that slave be treated with all of the privileges of somebody who is no longer a slave. That marriage is a way of freeing her, for real. So, in that situation, if he designates for her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment for money. So notice how God is trying to quickly set things up in such a way that there are boundaries, there are limits, and if there are abuses in that relationship, especially abuses on the part of the master, then the slave is out. No questions, they're out. They do not get to be abused, mistreated, treated in an inhumane way, and if they are, they're free. That's pretty cool. You think about all the stories that we heard of what happened in the South. Slaves were mistreated terribly if they were really following biblical commands. Any slave master who abused his slave should have had his slaves stripped from him and then set free. That's not what happened. So historically, do we really know that the Jewish people lived by these rules? I don't, I can't, offhand, I can't think of an example in the Bible that give, that where it's, it shows this. 
Because human nature is going to lead them to do the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Human nature, because it's all about I, idolatry. And yet the commands are so clear. They are explicit. And this is what is expected. Well, and the other people around the masters, though, would be watching uh-huh. each other. Yep. So, because this is civil law, right? Mm-hmm. So the government there, yep. it's not like it's just up to the master, you know, hey, make sure you don't abuse your slaves. Yeah. But everybody else is watching, too, including the government. Now, in, in this particular case, in the, in the theocracy of ancient Israel before there was a king, it was up to the fathers of each of the communities to make sure that these were followed. It was up to the fathers, the heads of the household, to make sure that this was happening. So if their neighbor was abusing their slaves, it was, it was absolutely the responsibility of the fathers of that community to say to the fellow who's abusing his slaves, your slaves get to go free. You're breaking God's law. Straight up. In a perfect world. Yeah, in a perfect world. Well, I... Perfect world wouldn't have this, but, you know, in a broken world, this is the best that we could hope. Now, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. That's murder. But if he did not lie in wait for him, and you're going to note that Scripture makes a distinction between premeditated murder as opposed to involuntary manslaughter. There's a big difference. And that's an important distinction because not all killing is murder. Now, when somebody is killed accidentally or intentionally, let's just say the family of the person who died oftentimes has very strong emotional reactions and may, in their anger and mourning, blame somebody falsely. God recognizes this case. So if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. I will appoint for you a place for which he may flee. This is a sanctuary city. Not like the sanctuary cities in California. I just want to make that clear. Okay. This is about somebody who had not intended to kill somebody, but they could flee there so that the justice could not be exacted on them without due recourse and without the proper procedure. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So premeditated murder, yeah, that's a capital crime. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Children who are abusive to their parents physically, death penalty. Whoever steals a man, and here's the text I was referring to just a few minutes ago. Listen to this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Consider the implications. This indicts everybody in the slave trade, from the supplier to the buyer. So there's a, there's a trade set up. They are kidnapping people, and they are stealing them and putting them into slavery. The enslaver, death penalty. The person who purchased the slave, death penalty. The whole industry is indicted. And I would, I would have you consider this, that in our day, slavery still exists. And I hate to say it, it still exists in our country. It just has taken on a different form, and it's pervasive throughout the world. When we talk about human trafficking, 
That is what we're talking about. This is a form of slavery. They are stealing women, putting them in bondage, literally forcing them to be raped day after day after day. And if this were, if this were enforced properly, all the way along, along the line, the people who would be indicted are the enslavers, the pimps, I guess is what they call them, to the people who are the Johns, all the people purchasing. Everybody involved in that whole slave trade would be put to death according to this. The only people who would not be put to death are those who were enslaved. So this still exists to our day. And it's important for us to recognize the severity with which God looks at this sin. This is a capital crime. This isn't 15 years in prison with possibility of parole after two. This is, you stand before Jesus, your ultimate judge, and he's going to condemn you to hell. That's how big this is. So our legal system with Judeo-Christian principles has failed us because these guys should be put to death. Yeah. Pretty harsh. Yeah. And I, and I want you to consider part of the issue that we're... One of the reasons I think we're suffering the way we are with some weird things and manifestations in our own society is I think the government has lost its way in the sense that it is tasked by God with punishing evil. And people who commit heinous crimes, even if they're given the death penalty, they have a better chance of dying in prison than actually facing an execution. And I want to be careful how I say this, but it makes me wonder if we shouldn't be having a debate along these lines. For particular crimes, terrorism, mass shootings, and I would even throw into it human trafficking, that we create an, ex, like an express lane. Because like when you go to the grocery store, if you have a lot of groceries, you go in one place. If you only have a few, you get to go into the faster line. Certain crimes I think we need to expedite. And it needs, there needs to be a proper due process and expedite it. And at the end of it, if it's truly a capital crime, I think we might want to consider televising the execution. I know that sounds grim. I know that sounds grim. But I'm going to tell you, part of the problem that people are talking about is that there actually seems to be a psychological motivation for some of the crimes that are taking place. These, these people are actually in some way thinking that they're attaining immortality or that they, they will have their 15 minutes of fame and they're getting their jollies off by committing the crimes that they're committing. But the one thing I know about criminals like that, ultimately every single one of them, they are cowards. And the only person they really care about is themselves. So let's disincentivize it. So not only will you not get fame, you'll get infamy. And you're going to be executed without being able to tell anybody any words publicly so that we can all see it. As grim and terrible and like medieval as that sounds, historically that's actually been quite useful in deterring crime. Well, and historically, you know, many innocent people have been executed as well. Yeah, this is true. I want to say that the Innocent Project is somewhere over 3,500 or so people they have been able to set free. Yeah, I, I understand that, which, you know, I'm not saying the system is perfect. But the current system is failing as a deterrent. It's truly failing as a deterrent. And I didn't say for all capital crimes. I'm just saying for a select particular type. 
Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, it seems like a lot of the crimes are done by people who are mentally handicapped. Sometimes. Well, that's the thing is our legal system recognizes that. If somebody who truly has a mental illness commits a crime, that's part of their defense. And we do not execute people who have a mental illness. That, that's always been the case. Yeah. Well, the deterioration of the family and the stepping away from uh, the church and the families and the importance of also has a part in the deterioration of, of, of the system here. Mm -hmm. And it has been worn down for as long as I can remember times before that. But my mother told me one thing one time. She says, the people, our opponents, will win this battle without firing a shot. And she was talking about the liberal, socialistic, communistic people. And they are winning this war. Yeah, at the moment. They are. And they've gotten into our school system. And they have been uh, indoctrinating our kids in the public school system. And, you know, it, it's hard to beat on this because... Uh, we as Christians, a lot of times we're humble and we won't speak up against some stuff because we sometimes respect the people that can have their word, you know, out. Well, then they shunt you down and you get tired of it and you go home and you bury your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. So with, you know, we can, we can start at the judicial system or should we start at home and the family? You have to always start at home and the family and church. Okay. Now, I want you to fill in the blank for the sentence. You actually know what the blank is. The blank is mightier than the sword. Pen. So here's the thing, is that we recognize that words have power. And all that is necessary for evil to thrive are for those who know what good is to remain silent. We, whether we want to recognize it or not, have always been at war with the forces of darkness. You understand what you call a soldier who refuses to fire his weapon in a battle. You know what you call that fellow? A coward or a corpse? Or both. So here's the idea. Is that because human beings, and we know this because Scripture says it so clearly in Romans 2, we actually have the law of God written on our hearts. We do. We know good and evil. People describe it who are unbelievers. They talk about their conscience getting the best of them. And where does that conscience come from? That's, a, that's something put into them by God. Now, here's the fun part. We actually are in the right. Those people are saying twisted words to end up, rather than punishing evildoers, they protect those who break the law. I'm sorry, but when you boil it all down, let's talk about sanctuary cities for a second. Or sanctuary counties. What is that? We, we, have, we have voted as a community that when somebody is in our country illegally, they have jumped the fence rather than gone the proper way to come into our country in order to work. That in our county, they will be protected and they will not be arrested. Really? What is that? That's not the punishing of evil. That's 
the punishing of good. That is the protecting of evil. And you can sit there and say, they just are trying to supply food for their family and things like this. Everybody should supply food for their family and work and do these things. But there's a right way and a wrong way to enter our nation. And there are laws in place for reasons. And so rather than enforce the law, people are breaking it. And the people who are breaking it are in the government. Something's really off. And as crazy as it sounds, just reminding the government and saying, I am a citizen here, and you, government of the United States or government of California or government of North Dakota, are tasked with the job by God of punishing evildoers, not punishing those who are doing well. So the same government who is protecting illegal aliens is punishing Christians for refusing to bake cakes for homosexual weddings. Everything's upside down, backwards, and inside out. And if you speak out, you know what's going to happen? People are going to unfriend you on Facebook. They're going to come onto your Facebook wall and accuse you of being a closed-minded, bigoted, racist, hater, homophobe, name all the litany of the stuff. Guilty as charged. Right. I'm innocent until guilty. So the fundamental issue, going back even deeper, is the lack of the church to teach what what you were just teaching here from the first 15 verses. I mean, what you just explained about slavery, I had never heard the cultural setting before. Uh huh. So when you understand that, then this starts to make more sense. Right. And society hasn't heard that because the church hasn't been giving us enough depth. And so liberalism flourishes because you yes. never take this passage and throw it right in your face and say, you know, look, the Bible endorses slavery. Yeah. But but you if, they, if somebody came to you and said, look, the Bible endorses slavery, you can say, ah, let's talk about that. Does it really? It doesn't, because we just read a passage that, enforced, that, that says anybody found guilty of stealing a human being or purchasing a human being has been stolen. That's the whole industry itself. That they, that's a capital crime. In fact, all of the slavery of the South, according to God's law, was a capital crime. Is it any wonder they lost the war? God was judging them. When they continue to twist the truth Mm -hmm. and not take it as it was intended or interpreted originally, like Don says, they're going to throw it back in your face. And at that time, I just put my head down and say, well, pick what you want. I know I'm right. And and my fight is over with. And it shouldn't be. Now I'm going to I'm going to point something out. We're only just we're only tip, breaking the surface of this chapter. Has what God's word said and revealed actually added some clarity to your mind about things and how the word, world and our government should operate? Yeah. And so I'm going to, I'm going to and Don actually made a point and that is is that many churches are no longer teaching God's word with this type of depth. And Because of that, there are whole generations of Christians who are ignorant of these things. And now that you know what God reveals here, does this is would this make a difference then in the conversations that you have with others? Yeah, hopefully it would. But the pastors and the people getting pumped out of these seminaries now have all got liberal arts degrees that are getting pumped out of these liberal 
uh, institutions and then sent on to seminary and their minds are already made up that they're not going to rock the boat. Yeah. And I'll be blunt. The pro- part of our problem is, is that there's a whole group of people who have fallen under the sway of this bigger, broader, we'll, just for lack of a better put, term, we'll call it social justice. The problem with social justice is ultimately it's not anchored in God's justice. It's anchored in a form of justice that reasons according to the current way in which human beings think. For me. For me, right. For me. And so you're going to note, in God's justice, everybody has rights. And I need to say this regarding racism. The last time I checked, there's only one race. The human race. Period. So if we're going to talk about other races, we'd better be talking about aliens, like space people, okay? Because that would be a different race. But when we're talking about human beings, the amount of melatonin you have on your skin doesn't make you a different race. Therefore, God has called us to love everybody, each other. They're in Christ... There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all, we all have equal standing with God. But at the moment, who's setting the agenda? People who are not grounded in real justice and an understanding of God's law in its true sense, and their ideology, which is not, which is based on human philosophy, has taken over and ruled the day. Specifically social Marxism. Right. And where's the church in the midst of all of this? The church is entertaining itself to death right now. I would say we don't have time for entertainment. We don't gather for me to do a 15-minute stand-up comedy routine and make you guys feel good about yourselves. That's not what we gather to do. We gather as Christ's sheep to feast on his word, to feast on his body and blood, to hear the forgiveness of sins, and dig into the word of God. I've got a, there's like 66 books in this thing, and we're into book what? <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's really fascinating. So many people, and, you, and this, I come, I'll come back to your initial point, that the guy wanted to throw the book against the wall, the Bible against the wall, he'd get into Leviticus and all this kind of stuff. But it's that very part that we think is the least important that is probably the most important at this time. God's law is glorious, and it reveals so much of his nature, and it shows us what God would expect of a government. You want to talk about real justice? Don't give me your theories, your ideas, and your ideologies. Let's come back to this book and really get an idea of what kind of justice God would expect from us, from our government, who is tasked with the job of punishing evildoers. That's their job. So whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Capital crime. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Interesting. When men quarrel... And one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed. This is the days before hospitals. So who were the nurses in the ancient world? Wives and daughters and mothers. So he's taken to his bed. He's injured. So then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff 
I know about that. They're called Cain's. He who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time. So, two guys get into a scuffle. Guys get into scuffles. This is because there's testosterone. They get into scuffles. You said this about me. No, I didn't say that about you. How dare you say that about me? Ah! And they get into a fight. And the women are saying, stop it. Use your brains, please. Use your brains. Knock this off. No, they're not going to use their brains, so they're going to come to fisticuffs. And one guy knocks the other guy down, and he goes out like a light. And it turns out his injuries were pretty severe. He has a concussion, and he's out of work for six weeks, legitimately. Six weeks out of work. All right, fine. God says, okay. So you who hit him, you have to pay his salary for six weeks. Not unemployment insurance, not the state of North Dakota, not the federal government, the fellow who knocked him out of the work. He has to pay for it. When you think about it, it allows rich men to go beat up poor men all at once. How can it hurt them financially to pay a poor man to now I'll be blunt. Okay. Now I understand. I understand. I understand how you're thinking here. But let me help you. Rich men. Do they work hard with their hands? Do they have muscles? No. Rich men are scrawny and puny, and they are the ones calling the shots. And if they were to get into fights with the guys who are working out in the field, that wouldn't go well for them. Okay. I can't. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, the, the winner will be charged with assault. That's a different story altogether. In this particular case, you notice the police haven't been called. In the, it's just a matter of what's the aftermath. You were knocked out of work for six weeks. You knocked him down. You pay for that. I, again, <laughs> apologize for the abrupt ending there, but I hope you found that helpful. So what would you think? Uh, love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.